another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, have you noticed that there is a lot of talk about MMT lately? <laughs> no, no, Joe, I, I haven't noticed. What's what's MMT? <laughs> no, it seems like um, hardly a day goes by where someone doesn't weigh in MMT. It stands for Modern Monetary Theory. It's a, uh, I guess, a a school of economic thought that's exploding uh, in popularity right now, very much online. And it's kind of complicated and there's a lot to it. But I think the gist is that people get really excited about is sort of rethinking our approach to deficits. So I think in mainstream discourse, government deficits are seen as bad or maybe sometimes a necessary evil as something to be avoided. And there's a lot more to it. But I think at heart, it's this view like, no, deficits and government debt isn't the same as regular debt. and We don't have to be afraid of it. Yeah. And MMT, by complete coincidence, I'm sure uh, could also be interpreted as many macroeconomists talking, which is what it has effectively (laughs) become, right? Like there is so much discourse about this particular topic. And it's kind of weird to observe because you think, oh, it's a relatively obscure economic theory. But I think what gets people really excited about it is that it's an an economic theory that essentially comes with a, a sort of view of what the world is or how the world should be, and also policy implications. So people get really, really riled up about this particular topic. I had never heard that acronym, many macroeconomists talking. I had heard a uh, magical money tree is another <laughs> uh, another pejorative uh, acronym for it. But I think you're right. And, you know, it's interesting. There are multiple parallels, I think, to uh, Bitcoin, actually, in the sense like in 2017, all these sort of old, like sort of mainstream people in banking and finance were asked to comment about Bitcoin, even though it never got I never got any impression that they had even understood what it is and they all thought it was awful. And now this year we're seeing the same with MMT in the sense that a lot of people are criticizing it and saying, oh, if we adopt this, we're going to end up like Zimbabwe or Venezuela. But it's not really clear that they've actually put in any effort into learning about what it is. And the other thing I think that parallel and you think about like why now both Bitcoin and MMT sort of post-crisis rethinking of like what money is. And a lot of people are frustrated with the economy, inequality, bankers, austerity. And so I think uh, that the frustration with the post-crisis period has sort of opened the door for new ideas to take root and gather steam and force the old guard to defend the existing system in a way they're not used to. Totally agree. And Bitcoin and MMT are sort of uh, two sides of a similar coin. I would say Bitcoin is a question about whether or not a government should have monopoly over money. And MMT is sort of the implications of what happens when a government does have monopoly over the money system. So I'm excited to talk about this one. We will add to the MMT many macroeconomists talking oof in this particular episode. Yes. And I mentioned that with both of the topics, I felt like there was this phenomenon where everyone grabbed someone on the stage and they said, what's your opinion on this? And Mm. even if it's not clear that the person had any idea what they were talking about for some reason they were listened to. So today we're actually going to talk to someone who has been a critic of MMT. But unlike most critics, uh, he actually understands it well. And at one point he was more of an adherent of it. 
And I first discovered MMT back in, I think, 2009 by reading his blog. So Ooh, Early uh, adopter. Yeah, very way early adopter. So I uh, am excited that on this week's episode, we have Cullen Roach. He is the founder of Orkham Financial. A lot of people know him as the author of the very popular finance blog, Pragmatic Capitalist. Like I said, I first discovered MMT through him in 2009. Now he's a bit of a critic, but he understands it very well. Uh, Cullen, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So it's pretty extraordinary how much talk MMT is getting these days, given that it was just, you know, you were just one of uh, hardly anyone, a handful of people writing about it about 10 years ago. Uh, Why don't you start off by saying sort of, in your view, what attracted you to this framework of thinking about the economy way back then? Yeah. So, you know, gosh, coming out of the financial crisis, I think what a lot of people were looking for was answers about how things worked because the world seemed so dysfunctional back then that I think, especially a lot of us in uh, in finance and economics, we were sort of rethinking the way that we had been trained about a lot of things and better trying to develop a model for, for better understanding the world, basically. And the thing about MMT is that it has a very precise descriptive aspect to it. And they do in general, a much better job of describing how the financial system actually works. So the big thing for me was, in particular, it was banking. They understand banking extremely well. So all the post-Keynesians do. The the MMT people are a strand of the post-Keynesian school. And all of the post-Keynesians have a very solid understanding of banking because they understand endogenous money, basically. The endogenous money is the concept that Essentially, banks create money from thin air. They don't they don't lend out their deposits. They don't lend out their reserves. The central bank doesn't control the money supply. Really, the banking system itself is endogenous. It, it literally can control the supply of money that is existent at any given time. And this was really crucial to understand coming out of the financial crisis because at, at its heart, the financial crisis was a banking crisis. It was a crisis of too much credit, too much money being extended by banks to, you know, finance homes that people couldn't afford. And when everything deflated, the central bank then responded with all these big actions. And the interesting thing at that time was that a lot of mainstream macro models said that what the central bank was doing through things like QE and whatnot were going to potentially cause hyperinflation. And Understanding MMT and endogenous money was really important because if you understood that that's not how things actually work, you understood basically that if the central bank flooded the banking system with reserves, it wouldn't necessarily cause banks to lend more. And in fact, if the lending system and the demand side of it was dysfunctional, that banks wouldn't lend more and it actually wouldn't cause high inflation. And so from a market practitioner's perspective, That was a huge, huge advantage to have by understanding the impact on financial markets and bond markets in particular. And so that was really my general attraction was that the post-Keynesian schools in general just have a better, uh, a really more sensible operational description of how things work. So, Cullen, I want to dig into this point because I think a lot of people won't remember that, you know, in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, just how 
revolutionary or different that idea was. When central banks around the world started doing quantitative easing, I mean, the the sort of common take on that was that it was going to lead to hyperinflation. And I will admit, I remember uh, writing up some analyst notes that said exactly that. What was it about practitioners of MMT? Like, what did they see that other people didn't? Well, I think it's that they just had a they have a better understanding of how banks actually work. So banks don't take their reserves from central banks and actually lend them out. In fact, they can't lend them out to non-banks. And so people who understood that operational aspect knew that if you added a trillion dollars of reserves to the banking system, that wouldn't be multiplied into, you know, $10 trillion of of money as the money multiplier uh, tells us. The money multiplier is basically a great big myth. And the endogenous money people, they all understood that. And so you know, it was interesting for me because I, I, I don't have a, a specifically a banking background, but I know enough people in banking and have worked with enough people in banking that and done enough work with bankers that I have a, a pretty solid understanding of how banking actually works. And so what I was hearing from MMT and the post-Keynesians and the, the theoretical side of things was being exactly relayed to me when I was talking to people on the operational side of things. And in particular, I was talking to a lot of people in Japan, market analysts who had been through the the various iterations of QE in the 2000s, and they laid out the accounting framework for me, and I was kind of relaying what I was reading in the theoretical works from the post-Keynesians and the MMT people, relaying it to these guys, and they were saying, yes, this is exactly how this works, and the outcome will be primarily the opposite of what a lot of people are saying. You know, all the analysts that I was talking to in Tokyo They were saying, Cullen, this thing does, this program, quantitative easing, it does the exact opposite of what all of you Americans seem to think it does. It is more likely to cause deflation, cause interest rates to stay low uh, rather than cause interest rates to rise and cause hyperinflation. And so the theoretical framework matched up exactly with the, the practitioner's accounting and explanations of how these things actually work. And so that was around the time when I was becoming a very vocal proponent of, you know, in retrospect, I wasn't, you know, to be fair to the MMT people, I wasn't exactly explaining their theory correctly. I was explaining components of it correctly, mainly the endogenous money component and the the sovereign money component of it to me was also very attractive because the, the flip side of this is, well, okay, if the if the government might not cause inflation, couldn't it cause us to go bankrupt? And that also was something that to me, didn't make a lot of sense. And so the MMT people seem to have a better explanation of, hey, yeah, we can print our own money, but we also can't go bankrupt in a money that we can print. Yeah, explain this. So this is where I was going to go. So in the intro, I mentioned that I think most people, when they think of MMT, either whether they really have no idea or some idea, they really uh, think a lot about this idea of rethinking deficits and rethinking fiscal sustainability And of course, the other thing that happened post-crisis is our deficits in the U.S. and elsewhere exploded because tax revenues dropped. There was a fiscal stimulus, automatic stabilizers kicked in, and there was a lot of hand-wringing about the size of the deficit. Can we afford stimulus? And some countries adopted austerity, and we kind of did too uh, after uh, in 2011. 
But that's the other component besides the banking system. So sort of explain to us that link between the endogenous money characterization of how the banking system works and also the MMT view on uh, deficit or debt sustainability. Well, there are almost two different components in MMT. They, they really are. I mean, the MMT people describe it as basically vertical and horizontal money. And so the, there are really two different money systems in the, in the MMT world where the, the government issues what is essentially the real stuff, the stuff that you settle your taxes in, basically reserves, currency, coin, um, and even treasury bonds to some degree are, I know the MMT people don't like to use the word money, but they, they are essentially what, what a mainstream economist would think of as money in the MMT world. And so you have kind of two different money systems where the, the banking system is basically using, it's issuing an IOU for the real thing. And so Households and basically the non-government sector, they can create money-like instruments that are denominated in, say, dollars, but they're not the real thing. They're not what you ultimately settle your, your tax payments with or, or what you basically what you have to pay the government at the end of the day with. And so that is important because the government can't run out of the thing that it actually issues. So whereas the rest of us, we can, you know, a household can run out of out of income. It can run out of money. It can run out of people who are basically a willing counterparty in the relationship. I mean, I can't always find a bank that I, I want to be my counterparty in a loan. Whereas the government, a and MMT uses this the word sovereign in what I would say is a little bit of a slippery way, but in general it's a for a developed and diverse economy that doesn't borrow in a, in a foreign currency, it's a generally accurate term to call it a sovereign currency, basically meaning that they can't run out of the money that they alone can create. And so there, I think uh, Stephanie Kelton has said before that the, the government's deficit is essentially self-financing in the sense that the government doesn't need to find sources of financing to, to, to basically issue new money. Um, this is probably where the policy implications start to come in. But before we get to that, I want to ask a, a question that you often hear or you know, make a point that a lot of people often bring up. And that's the idea that, yes, OK, governments are in some way self-financing and their deficits can sort of go as high as they want them to go. And the only upper constraint on that is the inflation rate. But then a lot of people come in and ask, well, are governments that already have high deficits de facto MMT? So if you look at the U.S., I mean, I think the budget there is supposed to get to one trillion in the next year or two. Um, Japan has been running sort of persistent budget deficits for a long time. Are those countries, those systems already MMT or is there something people mean about MMT as an economic theory that is different to just a big deficit? Yeah, so I think that the the MMT specific theory of the world is very different than the 
the world that we see in most of these economies. So running a big deficit is, I mean, to me, that's just sort of, it's basically mainstream macro Keynesian econ. I mean, most of what you see with the deficit is sort of an ebb and flow in a counter-cyclical way. So, you know, we've all kind of become Keynesians in the sense that you always see counter-cyclical deficits. Nobody becomes an advocate of budget surpluses during periods like 2008. It just doesn't happen. In fact, we've set up our policies so that we basically automatically have larger deficits because of automatic stabilizers that are in effect, automatic spending programs and and automatic cuts in taxes that cause the deficit to expand when the economy contracts. But MMT is much more specific in that. And I think this is the thing, the thing that I misunderstood about MMT when I first came across it was this fact, was that MMT is specifically different from mainstream macro in that it is a a buffer stock of employment theory. And what that means is that basically the way that mainstream macro views things and the way that a capitalist economy essentially works is that you have a buffer stock of unemployed people. And that in mainstream macro is the it's the buffer through which you control inflation, basically the the number of unemployed people to some degree is the thing that keeps inflation low. So you always have a certain number of, uh, I mean, for instance, today, people are saying we're at full employment and the unemployment rate is, you know, what, by some measures, it's it's seven, eight percent. By other measures, it's, you know, three to, you know, whatever, five percent, depending on which number you right. prefer. So but there are still a lot of unemployed people out there by any measure. And you have mainstream macroeconomists who are saying that the economy is operating at or near full employment, which is a weird thing to think of, because really what they're saying is that we're operating at a, a rate of employment where inflation is not high or or worrisome to a large degree. So there's a buffer stock of unemployed people in the way that mainstream macro works. And MMT is very specific in that they prefer and they explicitly say that you should use a buffer stock of employed basically to not only reach full employment, but to control inflation. So that's where the job guarantee that they advocate, it's not just a theoretical aspect of of their view. It is an essential descriptive component of how they view the world because they basically say that the government is the cause of unemployment. Therefore, the government is the only entity that can solve unemployment. And they're they're the only ones that, and I should be clear, when I say unemployment in the MMT world, they mean zero involuntary unemployment. So there's always some level of, of involuntary unemployment in mainstream macro, basically. So MMT is using a little bit of a different definition. And they're very specifically saying that they want to control the economy and prices and and employment through maintaining a buffer stock of fully employed workers. Yeah, let's let's dive into this, because I think this is sort of the crux of where a lot of different disagreements come out. And it also gets to some of the difficulty that I think people have in defining MMT. And of course, uh, critics of MMT will say, oh, they keep changing the goalposts. But what we have, let's see if we can break it down. So what we have is this sort of pure descriptive characterization of how money and banking works, both the financial system, the vertical, uh, the horizontal money, 
the government uh, self-financing deficits. It doesn't sound like you have much of a disagreement with that. So that's the pure descriptive aspect of how MMT says the existing economy works. It's not a policy prescription. Then they have these other aspects, and a lot of MMTers are associated with uh, sort of fairly radical or aggressive economic proposals. Lately, we've seen a lot of uh, MMTers uh, advocate for the Green New Deal. Um, you mentioned the job guarantee, this idea that the government would guarantee full employment. And it sounds like to me that the crux of the issue or one of the key questions is, is the job guarantee component, which some people would say sounds like, you know, big government socialism, is that part of the descriptive aspect of MMT or is that part of the prescriptive aspect of MMT? So I there seems to be some disagreement with within some of the MMT people over this. But I think Bill Bill Mitchell is really the clearest on this. And the way that he describes it essentially is that the government is the in the theoretical MMT world, the government causes unemployment. So when they start the money system, they basically they invoke rules and regulations and taxes that basically require people to obtain state money. So you have to obtain money to pay your taxes. And if you can't obtain money to pay your taxes, then you don't have a job and you don't have an income. So and if there's involuntary unemployment, then the MMT people would say basically, well, the government caused this, so the government has to fix it. And so if you understand that descriptive component of the MMT world and their view, then your logical conclusion is the job guarantee. There is no alternative, basically. Um, and I think I think they're on a little bit of slippery ground there. I, I do not necessarily think that the you can say definitively that the government is the cause of unemployment in the monetary system. So there there does seem to be at least some theory slipping into the description there and the and that leads to their big policy proposal which you know that's part of why although i i like a lot of what mmt says i think they tend to get they tend to overreach and they tend to find themselves in in positions that are not empirically sound that aren't really supported by a lot of evidence and this is one of those positions um and it weirdly it goes against a lot of sort of basic uh, Keynesian principles, mainly the the idea that really unemployment is the result of a lack of of investment, and so you know, gov- or the MMT people would say that well, yeah, that's just related to a lack of effective demand, which is the result of people you know needing an income, and the only way they can get their income is from the government. So you know, they're pretty. The MMT people are very very smart, and they're they've constructed a very sound and cohesive sounding theory that I think is especially intuitive to people who don't have a professional background and actually is even more confusing for people who have a professional background because they use a lot of these words in a sort of alternative way, words like unemployment and sovereignty in ways that they don't have a meaning to a, you know, Paul Krugman or Larry Summers, they read those words and they have a very specific meaning in mind when they think of those things and but they're they're speaking right past each other when they're talking to each other so i see a lot of these articles and i'm like oh well i understand what paul is saying but i also understand what warren mosler is saying and they're saying the things that in their own world are, are right 
but they're talking right past each other because they're speaking a different language. So, you know, it, if you if you set aside that empirical criticism that maybe unemployment isn't caused by the government, maybe it is caused by that lack of investment, even setting that aside, if you believe in MMT and you believe that the government should be fulfilling this sort of full employment mandate, I can imagine that that on its own has certain political connotations, um, certainly in America, right? Like a lot of people will hear that and think that is a very slippery slope on the way to socialism. Yeah, well, gosh, I mean, you could argue in a sense that it isn't even consistent with the way that a capitalist economy actually functions. I mean, America is very specifically a capitalistic type of economy. And this is consistent more so with the mainstream view that basically the way capitalists manage their own risks is through managing the unemployed. They don't hire everybody because they want to retain some profits. They don't want to pay out all of their profits. And so capitalists, to a large degree, they manage and try to optimize the economy by managing that buffer stock of, of unemployed people, in essence. And so I think you could argue to some degree that that is sort of the natural case of capitalism, that capitalism results in some degree of unemployment because capitalists, you know, going back to Keynes, capitalists never invest enough. Um, and so you need some other entity that is going to come in if you're going to mop up all of that, the rest of that involuntary unemployment. And I think you could make an argument that you're kind of you're kind of veering off of the the base case of capitalism into something, you know, I don't want to call MMT socialist, but um, it, it is more along those lines than it is arguably along the, the, the natural base case of what a capitalist economy produces. And I think that's the thing that kind of gets a lot of people riled up about this is, you know, the government is so involved in the economy to some degree in the MMT world that... I think people view that as a slippery slope. And, I, you know, honestly, I don't know how justified that is. The thing to me about MMT, I think that maybe worries me more than anything else is that it really hasn't been tried anywhere. You haven't really seen a true MMT regime anywhere with a full job guarantee, persistent deficits. Some of them advocate a zero interest rate policy in, uh, in perp- uh, perpetuity. So it's you know, that's never been tried. And so I think the uncertainty of it to me is something that because there's no real empirical evidence supporting whether or not all of this works to me is uh, something that I think is worthy of, of criticism to some degree. But again, I don't, you know, there's also a part of me that looks at a world with a job guarantee in certain countries where, I mean, for instance, if the United States started a job guarantee, do I think that the U.S. economy would suddenly go to hell in a handbasket? No. In fact, I kind of wonder if it actually wouldn't be a lot better in a country like the United States. But you kind of get back into the question of sovereignty there where the United States is so sovereign. Our economy is so big, so diverse and so productive that we can afford to do things like that, in my view, which makes MMT kind of interesting in specific cases like the United States Whereas in, you know, a place like Brazil, you know, they probably have no business adopting something like an MMT mentality because they quite literally can't afford to do it because they're it would probably result in runaway inflation or at least the risk of it or so. So big picture and we got to wrap it up soon is that. 
it, it sounds like listening to you and reading you over the years that at least on the pure descriptive side, MMT gets us a lot closer to understanding how the world actually works than almost all of these sort of mainstream economics or economism, as James Quack, uh, the professor, uses the term to sort of describe economic economic sounding things that aren't really rooted in anything. MMT gets us closer than a lot of uh, other frameworks do, but that there are certain uh, prescriptions that they offer that, in your view, just aren't nearly as solid and is sort of grounded in empirics uh, as the uh, advocates would claim. Yeah, I mean, I think they take certain liberties with explaining some things that are, in my opinion, kind of sloppy. For instance, they tend to consolidate the central bank with the treasury and they argue that the um, the government is uh, it doesn't need funding because it, it can't basically accept its own liabilities, which is what happens when the government pays taxes. But the that to me is, is sort of a an arcane discussion because it it gets into really specific reserve accounting and the way that you know the debate over why the reserve system even exists and things like that which is i, I think you know for someone like me who's kind of a nerd about all of this i get kind of nitpicky about stuff like that but in general yeah i would say that the the mmt description compared to the way that the mainstream models of all this stuff works i mean especially on the you know, the central banks and banks are such an essential component of the economy that if you can't describe how those things work, then you really are going to have a hard time describing how the system works. And MMT does a really nice job of describing those things. So, you know, while I disagree with some of the maybe specifics and whether or not the government is the cause of unemployment and descriptive aspects like that, I would say on the whole, they definitely do a much better job of getting us closer to reality than a lot of mainstream schools do. Well, I think this was a uh, I'm sure the uh, we're going to get a lot of hate from the MMT crowd on Twitter for having you on, because I know you fight with a lot of them. <laughs> but you're very polite. When I, you actually, talk in person. I, I like them a lot more than I think they think. And I, I think I sometimes come across as more critical than I really am. So I hope I provided somewhat of a balanced view here. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, Tracy mentioned in the intro, we hadn't really done an MMT episode yet but i think this was a uh, good balanced introduction for our listeners so colin roach really appreciate you coming on thanks for having me i'm actually really happy tracy that we start we had our first mmt episode with Colin, like I said, I'm sure some people are going to get really angry or say he mischaracterized something because that's always how things are on the Internet. But I thought that was a good balanced take. What's that quote from a streetcar named Desire? I feel like, you know, we, we've had this date from the beginning or whatever. Like you knew the MMT episode was coming, wasn't yeah. it? It was only a matter of time. We'll definitely have to do more because we can get uh, some of the more hardcore uh, MMTers mm. who could come on and disagree with him. But I think that this sort of the spectrum of what MMT means is sort of the source of a lot of the fighting and confusion because it does have this very descriptive aspect that's like, this is how it works. And then there are also these follow on prescriptions of like, OK, we know how the world works, so this is what we should do. And the question is always, how much does the latter necessarily spring forth from the former? And how much does the description of the world 
lead you to automatic policy conclusions or is there sort of a range of options we then have? And it feels like that's where uh, a lot of the uh, the fighting and disputes really happens. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I would also question the usefulness of an economic theory that is, you know, a- apparently self-evidently so unclear to so many people and seems yeah. to mean so many different things to different people. So MMT has done a fantastic job of, of capturing a lot of political interest and, and discourse yeah. and also a lot of economic interest, but it, it probably hasn't done as good a job in simply defining itself. You know, it's interesting. There hasn't been, I, and I suspect it'll change, but there hasn't been like mm. the definitive MMT book yet. It's, I mean, there have been yeah. books written on it, but like the real mainstream one that everyone can read, like I feel like that's still coming. Bloomberg, uh, we actually ran a really good piece a couple of weeks ago that I think is one of the mm-hmm. clearest descriptions yet. So I feel like the MMTers do recognize this and say like, okay, there is a lot of confusion out there. And some people think that MMT just means print money forever. And so it will be interesting to see if the people have brought it this far and, you know, they've they really just sort of in the last 10 years gone from commenting on blogs and some uh, obscure academics to entering the mainstream, whether they can uh, actually start to help people understand what it is they say. It'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, there's a book deal in there for someone uh, somewhere. For sure. But the the other thing that really interests me about MMT, and Colin touched on this uh, towards the latter end of the show, but how useful is it actually for a country that isn't the United States right. or that doesn't have a global reserve currency or a currency that's somehow viewed as a safe haven? And, you know, he mentioned Brazil, and I really wonder... The opportunities that MMT proponents are talking about, full employment and, you know, various other things, could those ever apply to emerging market economies or developing market economies that do not have the luxury of printing money without inflation? Yeah, the MMTers would say that they they do and that there's nothing specific to the U.S., Mm. but I do think that's an open question. Don't we have an episode coming up kind of about this question? MMT in the yes. EM context? Yes, uh, we, we did get a suggestion uh, from someone on Twitter. So we are going to talk about it. Uh, so yes, uh, plenty more Great. MMT episodes to come for sure. All right. Well, on that note, uh, people can look forward to that. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you should definitely follow our guest, Cullen Roach, on Twitter. He fights with a lot of MMTers all day. His Twitter (laughs) handle is at Cullen Roach. And be sure to follow our producer, Topher Forges. His Twitter handle is at ForgesT. And follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening.